you have your Bibles to start with, turn to the 20th chapter of Exodus, and we'll start using that as a base for our study this morning, the 20th chapter of Exodus. Last week, we began to talk about the law of God from the standpoint of the perfection of the law itself. And we noted that when we think of the law as given in the Bible, we shouldn't think of it as so many rules and regulations that are designed to take the fun out of life or to keep you from having a good time or in some way hinder you. But the law of God should be thought of as, as statements from a loving Father that made us in His image. And since He made us and He knows us and He knows what is best for us, has revealed for us, to us the most successful way to live our lives. And so that everything we're asked to do is something that is literally for our good. Or anything that we are asked not to do, it's something that's trying to spare us some consequence. We noted that as we look at that law, we don't just believe that law because the Bible says it's the law of God. Uh, if, if we're willing to believe something based on assertion, you're going to wind up believing any number of things that are false in your life. But no, there's several things that's happened when we look at this law. And one of the first things that happened is, is the inner identification that we see with our own conscience and our own experiences in life. And so we, on the one hand, read the law, but as we read it, we think about the observations that we have made in life, and we find ourselves saying, well, yes, that's right. Uh, there are consequences if you do that. And yes, that's right. There are benefits if you do that. But we also find identification with our own conscience. And we've all, as we read that law, we all know that we've had the experience of doing some of those things that it says not to do and then feeling guilty afterwards that there's something within us that we identify with the terminology conscience, a sense of all, so that when we do certain things that we perceive as wrong, we stand condemned in and of our own conscience. And so we look at that and we find our conscience identifies with that law. We find our experience and our observations identify with the law itself. And so then we find ourselves in a harmonious song with the psalmist saying the law of the Lord is perfect. We agree with that. The next step is the step we take in the study today, and that is the, the importance of the concept and the idea of God to law. I was studying not too long back in one of our Saturday night studies, and one of the men there is a Chinese who has recently come from China and comes from an atheist background. And we were using as one of the evidences for Jesus, his teaching and his life, and that inner identification there, and the fact that the whole world would be a fantastically better place if people actually submitted to those precepts. Well, in the process of the discussion, after everybody else had left the room, he and I continued to talk, and, and he said, I agree with what you're saying. And he said, the reason I've even started going to the Christian churches is because I find it appealing. And he says, the people over there are living by the philosophy of Jesus. I find very appealing, more than anything I've come in contact with. But then he said, you can have this without God. You really don't need God. He says, in my own conscience, in my own being... I can perceive that is right. So the man that wrote it 
obviously did not have to be inspired because he said, I can perceive it. And not only that, he says, why does man need God? That you can perceive these things are right and simply do them on your own. Well, that was at least a, a valid observation. There, there is that agreement, the question, why even the, the need for God in that idea? We're going to look at the law here. And our lesson today will not concentrate on evidences for the existence of God. We've done that before. We'll get into a little bit, but really not much. But what we're going to emphasize is the necessity of God for law to work. And this concept is important because in our society today, the most prevailing philosophy is something we can identify as secular humanism. Uh, Ted Turner, who owns a very influential TV network, is a humanist and has been their man of the year and spoke at their conventions. Uh, Norman Lear, who is responsible for so many programs on TV, is a humanist, uh, an atheist, uh, founder of an organization, People of the American Way. And the humanist philosophy pervades our textbooks in school. In fact, I honestly do not have contact, or have not had contact with psychology, sociology, and history, and scientific books in, in education except that it is totally controlled by the humanist point of view. And the humanist point of view can come across sometimes almost appealing because these various things that we can perceive are there. In other words, humanists are not people that advocate that you go out and murder and lie and steal. They are people that simply say that the highest order of life is humanity. There is nothing above humanity. There is no God. And we ought to live in keeping with the laws that we can perceive. Okay, and that, by the way, is the prevailing system in our, law, in our society today. Uh, we, for example, endorse legally the abortion of babies because of the humanist philosophy. Many of the humanists will say, I believe it's wrong. I wouldn't do it. But yet it happens. The same humanist will endorse pornography and the various publications that put that material out saying, no, I don't buy into it. I personally believe it's wrong, but, and yet it still exists. So the humanist philosophy can perceive certain things as right and certain things as wrong, but there is something there, and we're going to notice why, there's something there that stops them from ever saying that something is wrong. They'll say it's wrong for me. But they cannot stand up and say it's wrong for the other person. And we're going to see something there in the necessity of God behind law. And also that even in our society or any society, you really in the final analysis cannot have morality without God. Notice as the commandments are given, and I'm only going to read the first few of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, beginning with Exodus chapter 20. Number one, the premise of all of it. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth or beneath the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the, for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation, but of those who hate me, showing love to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, notice there that the whole basis of the starting of these commandments is tied into belief in the one and only true God 
who cannot be represented in any idolatrous way. He continues on. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So a God that is holy, reverent, the creator, and is to be respected. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For in six days the Lord, this is verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then he gives six commands relative to human relationships. Number one, honor your father and mother. Number two, you shall not murder. Number three, you shall not commit adultery. Number four, you shall not steal. Number five, you shall not give false testimony. Number six, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or anything that he has. All right, before we have these laws, dealing with our relationship one to another, the first four deal with the righteousness of a holy God who is the creator of all and the sustainer of all and will hold us accountable in our attitude. Now, the question becomes, what happens to this law that we all identified with last week and we say, yes, the law is perfect. Yes, I see how that if, if everybody respected this law and, and marriage is actually where until death do you part and people didn't commit adultery and people didn't murder and people didn't steal and lie, etc., that this would be a grand place to live. The Bible stakes all of this, first of all, in the concept and the belief in God. All right, let's look at the law without God. First, the necessity of the law, and then the law without God. The closest really big city to us is Atlanta. How would you like to go to Atlanta if you had just read in the paper the day before that Atlanta has just done away with all its rules and regulations and laws? There will be no stoplights. There will be no signs. There will be no yielding signs or red and, red and green lights. Uh, there will be no, no law out there. There's no law against drunken driving or anything like that. And so you've got this huge city of several million people and all the traffic coming in and no stop signs, no lights, no yielding, no laws whatsoever. Do you want to go to Atlanta? You don't. Uh, to go to Atlanta would almost be to commit suicide. The reason we have those things in every city is we recognize that we need rules and regulations that cause us to respect one another and, and give one another rights. And so if we all respect those traffic laws, we can move through Atlanta in a smooth way. Without it, we don't even want to go. So there's a necessity for rules and regulations as, as individuals interact with one another. Okay, now, the necessity of something. Let's give Atlanta back its traffic laws. You, you now have your speed limit posted, 55 here, 65 here, 35 there. You've got your red and green lights. You've got your laws condemning drunken driving. You've got your laws against murder, your laws against stealing. All of those are set in force in Atlanta. But the police force has just went on strike. And so there's no police force in Atlanta. They've all left town. The laws are there. But there's no judge, there's no police force, there's no jail. Do you want to live in Atlanta? Do you want to go to Atlanta? We know something, don't we? Those laws are not going to stand 
unless there is enforcement behind them. It's not good enough for us to live in a society that says thou shalt not murder. We know that if you can go to Atlanta and people can murder and nothing happens, and people can steal and nothing happens, and people can lie and nothing happens, and they can get drunk and drive on the road and nothing happens, and you can drive 100 in a 30 mile hour zone and nothing happens, we know that Atlanta's still not going to be a pleasant place to play because we know that there are going to be a few people, a minority, that will obey and say, hey, it's crazy not to obey these laws, but you know that there are a majority of people out there that are not going to submit to those laws unless they have to be accountable. And we know that the laws are valueless if there is no force behind them, that everybody really becomes a law to himself. What do you think would happen even in a little school like this, a K through 8 or, or after the high school, if we said we're going to have all the same rules and regulations, you know, you can't do this and this and this, etc., and you can do this, and you've got to do this if you want to graduate, but there will be no accountability. There will be no enforcement of the laws. In other words, that if you steal or cheat or fight or knock somebody in the head or, or skip class or don't do your homework or decide you don't want to go to class, nobody would do anything about it. We'd like for you to do these things. We know you can see that it's right, but there will be no accountability. What do you think the attendance is going to be among some? Do you think there's going to be more fights? You think there's going to be more stealing? Uh, you, think, you think there's going to be more problems? Well, we know that all, if word got around that the rules are not enforced, that you can sit in class for four years, do absolutely nothing, skip classes, not get any homework assignments, you're still going to get your degree at the end of the four years. Things would change. So I'm saying law, and even law that is of such a nature that you can perceive inwardly that it's right, if there is not a force to stand behind that law, and a force that you have to be accountable to, the law is valueless. So the insensuality, and so the Bible makes this statement. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The law has its meaning because it comes from God. Yes, it's right because it's inherently right. And God says do this simply because it's for your good. It's inherently right. But the law of the Bible is also given from the standpoint that every individual is accountable to the creator of the universe based on that law. So that means if you live in a society that has both the law and God, then you live in a society who recognize that I am accountable to the creator of the universe. That even if I go out here and do something that the state officials don't catch, I'm accountable to the creator of the universe. Think of some of the events that, of a sinful nature that happened or potentially happened in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph and the wife of Potiphar that tried to persuade him to commit adultery with her? And remember the statement of Joseph? In fact, he refused to do it and wound up going to jail as a result of it when she lied about him. I will not sin against God. First, he respected his master. I don't want to sin against the master but I will not sin against God. The morality of Joseph was staked in the fact, even concerning his own sexual morality or anything about his integrity, that first and foremost he was accountable to God.
So the opportunity is there. In his case, he's even going to get punished if he doesn't do wrong. But in his mind, I'm accountable to God. And as a result of that, Joseph did not give in to the situation. Remember David, when he did sin, and he did commit adultery with Bathsheba. And remember when Nathan came and rebuked him. David had did something that was not wrong by any law in the world at that time. Any king had the right to do anything he wanted to with the subjects. But David was accountable not just to a law. He was accountable to a law given by God, the creator of the universe. And so when Nathan came to David and he rebuked him, had Nathan did that to Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein would have kicked him in the teeth. I'll do what I want to. Or any other dictator. Or any other king. But not David. He's king. But in his mind, he's not above the law. And so when Nathan comes to the king of Israel, David repents. And he weeps. And he petitions God to forgive him. And he changes his thinking, and he changes his way, and you can read his repentance in Psalms 51. What you have in David that makes him such a good man is not just his belief that the law is perfect. Hammurabi believed in a law. The law code of Hammurabi, given 200 years before Moses, contained most of the precepts in the law of Moses. But Hammurabi was nowhere near the person that Moses was. And Hammurabi was nowhere near the person that David was. Because Hammurabi did not believe that that law came from God. And so the strength of the law was the fact that it came from God. And every individual that had it in his heart, first of all, said, hey, I know it's right. I identify with it in my inner being. My conscience agrees with it. But over and above that, it comes from God. And one of these days, I will give an account of myself to the creator of the universe. What is happening in our nation as we become more and more immoral and permissive and we steal more and we murder more? Uh, the president of the United States, in speaking on crime just a week or so ago, pointed out that we were so concerned about our troops in the Mideast. And during that period of time when our troops were in the Mideast, there were more murders in Washington, D.C. alone than we had troops killed in the Mideast. There were more policemen in the United States killed last year than there were military persons on foreign soils fighting. Something is wrong. Is it that we no longer believe what is right in the United States? No, we believe it's wrong to murder. We believe it's wrong to steal. And even the most devout secular humanist like Norman Lear or Ted Turner will tell you they believe it's wrong to murder. They'll even say that they'll go so far as to most, the majority, to reject adultery as being something that's right. But the humanist has taken God out of it. You can read the textbooks and not even know God exists. And so what is right, although there is inner identification, has no more going for it than humanity. And so that means I become very self-serving. I want to apply these laws to others, and I can see it's right. But it is very tempting to me 
to be self-serving and to not obey that law when it doesn't suit the lust of my own flesh. And so our country is becoming more immoral, more involved with crime, more corrupt politicians. Uh, the thing on TV the other night, 2020, Stanford University, prestigious university, one of the most expensive places you can go in this country. And for years they've been bilking the government and your tax money for millions of dollars uh, with the president and others lavishly spending that on themselves in the name of research. They don't believe in accountability before the creator of the universe. When God goes out, so does accountability. There will never be a higher degree of morality in this country or in Grundy County or in any society without God. Man has the ability to perceive the rightness of the law. His conscience cries out that it's right. But he needs to be accountable to it. And when the Bible gives the law, it holds man accountable before the creator of the universe. It means when young people who believe in God say their marriage vows, until death do you part, and being faithful to one another isn't just a good idea. It's staked in God. And the creator of the universe has said that we will give an account for our attitude towards that law. I want to turn over here and read a couple of passages and then read one and conclude the lesson. I'd like to read first in Romans 2 and verse 12 and show man's ability to perceive law and to know it's right and to, and to inwardly identify with it. Then I'd like to look at Romans 1 and show what happens to that very law that man perceives as right when he kicks God out. In Romans 2, beginning with verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required of the law, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing and now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Paul's argument here is that nobody has any excuse concerning their sin. That even the Gentile who has sinned, who did not have contact with the revealed law, he says, your own conscience, you're made in the image of God, inwardly you know it's right, and many times you even do the things that's right based on your own conscience, so there's no excuse. You know what right is. Now, no question then, Paul says, everybody, Jew and Gentile, can know what's right morally based on their own conscience, their own observations, their own experiences with life. But why then did the Gentile wind up in the condition that he was? Look at the Jew and the Gentile. The Gentile of his own conscience can perceive the same things of the law that the Jew did through Revelation. But when you looked at the Jew and the Gentile, morally, there was night and day there. The Jew was ten times over 
more moral in the days of Jesus than the pagan Gentile. Why? One had his conscience saying the, saying the law cried out and he could see it was right. The other had the written record. But here was the difference. The Jew not only had the law, in the Jewish mind that law was staked in God and his accountability was to, to the creator of the universe. The pagan Gentile had kicked God out of the picture and replaced him with idols made in his own image and that allowed him to defy his own conscience and go out and live in a way that he knew was wrong. I'm reading now from Romans 1. The Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what they may be known about God is plain to them. God's made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Paul says there's no excuse in rejecting God. Something doesn't come from nothing. The very fact that something is here declares that something caused it. For every effect there's a cause. And so Paul is saying, like David would say of himself, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The heavens declare the glory of God. Paul said, you cannot contemplate the universe, the galaxy, the solar system, nature, and your body, and have it not cry out of a supreme creator. So there's no excuse. But they wanted to get God out of the picture. Why? Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust one for another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteousness, decree that those who do things deserve death. They not only continue those very things, but approve of those who practice them. Don't you see what Paul is saying? There is no excuse for rejecting God. The evidence is overwhelming. The law we know is right and we inwardly identify with. But if you want to pursue your own flesh and live contrary to your own conscience, then you need to kick God out of the picture. And so we kicked God out, Paul said, and we replaced him with idols made in our own image. And then this is the result. Secular humanism 
on the one hand offers platitudes about humanity being good to one another, and we're going to make this a utopia world, and, and they acknowledge all of these truths that we can see with our own conscience. And then on the other hand, they stab God in the back, and they kick him out. And they try to convince you you're going to have this utopia without God. What has happened? You can repeat what Paul said in Romans to our society, men running around lusting after other men. An AIDS epidemic out here killing thousands and thousands of people and men so perverted that they're still out there lusting after one another. Women lusting after women, committing acts between themselves that are absolutely indecent and vulgar even to think about. Children that are brought up insolent and, and disobedient. Murder on the increase out here. In fact, 23,000 thousand people murdered in the United States. We're not talking about uh, homicides. We're talking about plain old murder through hatred. 23,000 of them last year. 27,000 drunk drivers uh, kill lives on the roads of the United States. And so we have a society that fits right in here. What's the problem? God has been kicked out. There is no morality without God. Even though we can perceive it and know it in our conscience, without the accountability, without the understanding that it, it comes from the creator of the universe and we all will give an account to him, it has no more force than the laws of Atlanta would have or the laws in little old Swiss Memorial or the laws at the high school or the laws in Grundy County if you kicked the enforcing agent out. You know, sometimes we humorously uh, mixed statements even about our own county that we've got, you know, so few police and sheriff and sometimes we criticize and all. But would you want to live even in Grundy County without a sheriff and the policeman and the judge? Whatever fallibility they may be there because they're human. I don't want to live in this place. Uh, the day the sheriff packs up and leaves and the police pack up and leave and the judge pack up and leave is the day you're going to see a for sale sign in front of my house. I don't think anybody'd buy it. But it'll be there, because this won't be a fit place to live. And so it's not enough to perceive that law is good. We have to be able to realize that God is behind it. There is accountability, and I'm going to end the lesson with one of the, I think, most beautiful psalms of all of them, in Psalms 19, where we have this concept all brought together in the evidence for the existence of our Creator, and then the beautiful perfection of the law itself. Psalms 19. The heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour their speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun which like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course, it rises at one end of the heaven and makes its circuits to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And so David stands back and he says, the voice of God through the heavens is heard all over the world. That as we use our God-given intelligence and, and we see it all operating in perfect mathematical precision, when we think in terms of the vast stars and their size and the sun and the moon and the universe and the solar system, it baffles our mind. And we see all of that greatness operating in absolute perfect mathematical precision 
And the psalmist says it declares the glory of a creator. For every effect, there's a cause. If we have that great an effect, then how much greater must be the cause? Then David says, the law, just as the, that's perfect, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, much more than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey and honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let's conclude our lesson. Think of the perfection of God's law. Think of how much better that your marriage could be, your success in rearing your children, your getting along with others, how much longer you even might live if you respect the law of God. But think further on it. The law is not just something that you identify with in your conscience. It comes from the God who gave you. And one day each one of us will give an account to the creator of the universe for the attitude that we've had towards his law. Jesus didn't die to take away law. He said himself, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The law is perfect. Jesus died for lost sinners like you and I who have broken the law. And Jesus died to give us a second chance. And he says, if you're willing to repent of your sins, that's transgressions against God's law, then you can put your trust in me. And God will forgive you of all your sins. My sacrifice will atone. And then begin your walk anew with your life staked in the resurrection of Jesus, depending on your righteousness and your trust in his atonement. But although you depend on it, because at our best we're imperfect, remember all the time, God's law has never ceased to be perfect. And the success of your life here in this world will be locked in to your respect for God's law in the way you apply it in your marriage and in your home and in your everyday affairs of life. Let's conclude our lesson. If you're in the audience as one that is not a Christian, God loves you no matter what sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. If you're willing to repent, God's willing to forgive you. Jesus died for you. If you desire to respond, we give you that opportunity. As together we stand and sing.